Good morning. We've been studying the species recorded in Luke's book of Acts. And so far, what we've noticed is that the speeches have been focused on individuals in Jerusalem. In chapter 7, which is where we are, this changes. The martyrdom of Stephen will cause Jewish Christians to relocate first to other parts of Israel and then to parts of the Roman Empire. In fact, the word for sow, as in sowing seed, is the same word that's used when people are persecuted and forcibly dispersed, in this case, from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and into the remotest parts of the earth. So what we'll see from this point on is from a human perspective, we will start to see suffering and excommunication. Jewish Christians, particularly Galileans and some Judeans who will be forcibly moved out of um, Israel into other parts of Israel and into the Roman Empire. But from a divine perspective, we will see God sowing Jewish Christians in Gentile territory that they might be able to bear fruit there. And let's pick up the narrative as we uh, come to focus on Stephen. It says, now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace, we're in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter yeah, 6, verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. That might have been individuals who were formerly slaves, who had become freedmen and, and now were Jews. Anyway, it goes on. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is a pivotal figure in the book of Acts and in the early church to this point, opposition toward the Christians has come from the Jewish leaders, but the, the Christians enjoyed the, the favor of the people who allied with them and prevented the Jewish leaders from taking action. Because of Stephen and what happens here, the picture changes. And what we'll find is that the people themselves will join in the resistance to the Christians, and in this case, to Stephen in particular, with drastic results. The instigators seem to be Grecian-born Jews, Jews who had moved 
into the Roman Empire were Greek-speaking Jews then, and who had moved back to Jerusalem. Paul was a case in point. He, his roots were in Cilicia, and he had relocated when he was doing his studies under Gamaliel, probably about age 15. He moved back to Jerusalem, and he was one of the group who were stirring up things. It might come as a surprise that Grecian Jews were the ones who were so conservative and they were so incensed at Stephen. You'd imagine that coming from the Roman Empire and being Greeks, that they would have more tolerance and be more receptive of new ideas. Actually, the evidence is that the opposite was the case. They were more meticulous and nationalistic and vehement in their alliance and adherence to the law. Um, Jews who moved to Israel were usually highly nationalistic Jews who were very zealous for the nation of Israel. They left their homes to migrate to the holy city, the temple city. So these Grecian Jews, they stirred up the people, perhaps put words in the mouth of some Judean Jews who were from the vicinity around Jerusalem, and to the effect that Stephen had spoken blasphemy against Moses and against God. And as we come to Stephen's reply, we'll take two weeks to look at it. It's the longest speech in the book of Acts. We'll find a couple of themes. Uh, we'll find a theme of God's faithfulness, and we'll also find a theme of human faithlessness. Let's consider divine faithfulness first this week, and then human faithlessness next week. Pick up the narrative in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. Even though at that time, Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. And he's talking about Egypt there in the captivity. Goes on, he says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Stephen begins with Israel's... <coughs> religious history, um, with God's call to Abraham to leave land and relatives and travel to a land that God would direct him to. He tells him what will happen. 
His descendants will be sojourners in a foreign land. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And that's what happened in Egypt. They would be delivered through God's judgment and then finally come to worship God in this place, which could mean Israel, but probably meant the temple. The real goal, however, of God's promise to Abraham was not that they would occupy the land, not even that they would worship in the temple. It was that God would extend blessing to mankind through Abraham and his seed. You could see it as not just a to promise, but a to and through promise. What God said to Abraham, I am going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all mankind through you. Here's what he, here's what God promised in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the promise that Abraham understood, not just that he would be blessed, but that he and his people would be channels of blessing for all mankind. It's interesting as we identify some things about God in his faithfulness, God doesn't wait for people to come to him. He didn't wait for Gentiles to come and join Jews. He sent Jews to bring the good news to Gentiles. When we think of evangelism, we often cast it as leave them and join us. You know, leave them and whoever them is, sinners or people who do this or that, and leave them and join us because we're the church. And, and there's a place for this, but that's not what God did through Abraham. It wasn't, and not to the first Jewish Christians, it wasn't that he was saying to people, leave them and join us. What he was saying was, leave us to join them. And that's what God did. He sowed Jewish Christians into the land of the Gentiles, commissioning those who were his children that they couldn't bring or attract everyone to them that he was going to send them over. And this is what God does. He doesn't stay in heaven. He comes down in the form of a human, and he joins us in order to bring the good news. And he does the same with those he commissions, calls them to himself, commissions them to go and bring the good news to those who are not in a position to hear it. That's what we find here. That's what he did with Abraham. And Stephen moves from God's faithfulness to and through Abraham to God's faithfulness to and through Joseph. That's what we read in verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering. And our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. 
On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Israel's deliverance when they were um, in Egypt, it did not occur in the promised land. In the promised land, and this is just a, 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 an observance as we go by, in the promised land were distress and famine. It was not a place that they were being blessed. God delivered them in Egypt, where there was food and where their brother was, and their divinely appointed deliverer. All of God's acts of deliverance in Stephen's account will find Abraham and Joseph and Moses, particularly. All God's acts of deliverance take place outside of the borders of Israel. And what God is, and Stephen is indicating in this historical sketch is that God doesn't need to be in a locale to save people. He goes to where people are. He doesn't get them and save them in the in Jerusalem or in Israel. He goes to save them in Egypt and, and Canaan. Um, the main part of Stephen's summary, however, is, is not, it doesn't dwell on Joseph, but on Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers made two visits to um, see Joseph, and they recognized him on the second. And we find this little quirky thing, the same thing that happens um, with Moses. They wouldn't recognize Moses as God's deliverer when he first uh, appealed to them. It was in the second one. And Stephen is going to use this to make a point. Jesus came as the divine deliverer in the same way and in the way that they didn't recognize Joseph, in the way they didn't recognize Moses, who was God's dispatched commission deliverer, they didn't identify Jesus the first time. And the implication is, as Stephen and those called to represent Jesus express that that he is the deliverer, they would accept him the second time they hear about him. Um, However, um, the, uh, they rejected Jesus, and Stephen hopes, again, that, the, that the, the second chance will allow them not to make the same mistake. There's one more witness to God's faithfulness from Israel's history. We saw Abraham and Joseph, and then there's Moses. In verse 17 of chapter 7, at the time, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, again, to die, per the Pharaoh's instructions for all those born into Jewish families, um, 
when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, man, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was, mis man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. The major portion of Stephen's sketch is devoted to the story of Moses. Israel's fathers enjoyed prosperity in the early days in Egypt because the ruler knew them. But when a new king rose in Egypt, he was alarmed at how quickly Jewish families were increasing in number and how many Jews there were. The new kingdom, the new king then enslaved them and forced labor, and forced labor made them slaves. And he forced them to expose their children. When the children were born, he made them just put the children out into the elements to die by starvation and exposure, infanticide. Um, Moses then seeing the oppression wants to then follow through with what he believes God told him. He intervenes in a fight between an Egyptian and an Israelite, and he assumed that the Israelites would recognize that God was using him to rescue them. This is the pattern Stephen zeroes in on. They rejected their divinely chosen leader, put his life in danger, and forced him to flee. Find a couple of things as we kind of sum up this um, the beginning of this historical sketch, we see this, God remains true to his promises, even when it seems they are being victimized and that God is unaware. It's, that's one of the questions we ask, isn't it? A couple of questions when we're suffering. Are you unaware? Do you care? And it seems like it's got to be one or the other. If you see what's happening to us, and you don't do anything, that must mean that you don't care. Or if you do care, but don't do anything, that must mean you're unaware. So which is it? Uh, are you unaware? Or is it that you don't care?
And even though there was suffering, there were difficulties. Here's what God says about, I have indeed seen the oppression. I see the hurt. I see the pain. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to set them free. Love that. I have seen. I have heard. I have come down. And that's Jesus. I have seen. I have heard. I have come down. Um, He looked upon their oppression and would deliver them. God being faithful to his covenant promises. This is what mercy is. In the Bible, when mercy is attributed to God, mercy on God's part is not God acting because he feels bad. It's not, I've heard their oppression. I've heard, I've seen the oppression. I've heard their groaning. I can't stand it anymore. I'm finally, it, it hits me. That's not the point. It's at God's time, he reacts not because he feels, but because he promised to. Promise to. And and that's what mercy is, covenant faithfulness. God being faithful to do what he promised to do in his covenant. That's divine mercy. God's mercy to us is not driven by feeling. It's not that God finally feels bad, he doesn't, but it's that God has promised and he does make promises. God God is a God who keeps covenant promises. And that's true for the entirety of the Bible. Old and New Testament. God is the same. He is a God who fulfills covenant promises. What we find is that the promises that he promises to fulfill, those change. God doesn't change, but his covenant does. And in the Old Testament, he fulfills old covenant promises. On this side of the cross, God wants us to believe that he is faithful to fulfill new covenant promises. You know what God promises? He promises to put his law in your heart, not on tablets of stone. He promises that he will be your God and you will be his son and daughter. You won't have to have somebody say, know the Lord, because all will know from the least to the greatest. And the third promise, he promises one, that I'll put my law in your heart, right? I'll put my, your law in your mind and write it on your heart, too. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Three, I will be helios, merciful, favorable, gracious, benevolent to your unrighteousnesses and will remember your sin no more. Is God going to keep those promises? You betcha he will. God never fails to fulfill his covenant promises. He's faithful. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your faithfulness. And as we'll see, even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.